Merry Christmas to all of you. Um, I think it would be great. I don't know how many are watching, but these all these services are streamed live over the Internet, and I get mail and email from literally all over the world. And um, so why don't you just give a special Christmas greetings to those who are maybe watching by the Internet right now. There you go. Terry and Nancy Clark, what a great couple to have on Christmas Eve and share their music with us, the special songs that they have written just for this occasion. And they have, by the way, in the lobby, some of their CDs and tape cassettes of their Christmas music, all songs that they have written, produced, that are on that record. And they're offering it a special deal. Now, they didn't ask me to, like, pump it up or anything, but I'm their commercial just because I believe in them and I believe in their music. But uh, they're selling their CD for $10 only. And if you buy a CD, you get a free cassette of it as well thrown in. So you may uh, want to do that on the way out. I'm going to ask for your attention the next several minutes, and I'm going to ask you to try to keep your seat and remain as quiet as possible. And if you brought a Bible, that's great. I'd like you to open it to Luke's Gospel, Chapter 2, for the next few moments. You know the story, you've heard them all before, but it's always good to look at it afresh. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Now, I heard of a pastor who on Christmas Eve stood up and told everybody Happy Easter. The reason he did that is because he knew he wouldn't see a lot of them for a whole year. Um, I'm not going to do that. I'll refrain from doing that. So, uh, Luke, chapter 2. It came to pass. In those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was, while they were there, that the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the Indian Ocean is a little tiny deserted island called Christmas Island. I looked at it this week on the Internet. It's really not much of an island, not much going on there. There's an airstrip on it. It was used for wartime purposes, Christmas Island. I also discovered that out in the Pacific, there is another island with the same name, Christmas Island. And I thought, Christmas is always an island. It's an island of hope in a world of despair. It's an island of love in a world of indifference. It's an isle of peace in a world of chaos. So tonight, would you come with me to Christmas Island? Now, let's go back a couple thousand years. You remember that cartoon growing up, some of us growing up, remember Mr. Peabody, 
who told Sherman, Sherman, set the Wayback Machine. 2,000 years ago, and let's go back to this setting as we just read in Luke's Gospel. Now, I remember growing up, and if I go back just that far, I remember the manger scene on Christmas Eve in my parents' house. Candles were lit around it. Pine tree branches were cut and placed in the back of it. It was quiet Christmas music. Usually Bing Crosby was playing in the background. So the scene sounded beautiful. It smelled beautiful. It felt beautiful because it was a temperature-controlled room. In other words, it was very inaccurate when it comes to how Jesus was born and the setting with which he was born. Let's recreate the scene. And let's begin with the trip that that family took from Nazareth 90 miles to Bethlehem. Now, if you've ever been on a tour to Israel, it takes just a couple hours to make that trip. Back then, it probably took Joseph and Mary 10 days. Why? Well, because they made it probably at least a week before she delivered the baby, maybe a little earlier. The average traveling distance by foot or burrow was 20 miles a day. That was a good long day journey. But with the steep terrain to get up to Bethlehem, making it through the mountains, plus you have a pregnant wife, probably 10 miles a day. So nine or 10 days trip altogether to go to Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? That's where Joseph's lineage traced back to David as well as Mary's. That was the city of David, Bethlehem. In Hebrew, Bethlehem. The place of bread, it literally means. Isn't that a great name for where the bread of life would be born? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Not only did they make that arduous trip, but they had to pack their own belongings. No In-N-Out burgers on the way. No Burger King. They packed their own victuals, their own food. Lots of bread and wineskins filled with water. Probably breakfast consisted of dried bread, much like we would eat a plain bagel. Lunch was probably bread dipped in olive oil with herbs, and dinner was probably the same. And all of that long marching from the highlands of Galilee, which is where Nazareth is, down south along the Jordan River, that's the flattest part, until you make a steep ascent, very steep, from about... 1,290 feet below sea level to about 2,500 feet above sea level in a short distance. That was the climb that they made toward Bethlehem. Now, when the journey was over, the hardships were not over. They tried to find lodging. There was no room for them in the inn. Now, I don't know how you picture the inn in your mind, but maybe you picture like the Holiday Inn, or the Hilton Hotel. i got to tell you, the inns in those days were no holiday. The inn in that day was known as a caravansary. That is, a place where caravans stopped. That's right. People with camels and horses and donkeys making caravans from one place of the trade route to another would stop overnight at an inn, a caravansary. In the courtyard were kept all the animals. And on little raised platforms in a square around that courtyard was the places where people would throw out their mat and place their head 
on a stone or wood or if they brought their own little pillow or mat and they would spend the night. There was no room for them even in that caravansary. And so they went to a cave nearby where animals were kept. One novelist writes more accurately of that evening, were someone to chance upon the sheep stable on the outskirts of Bethlehem that morning, what a peculiar scene they would behold. The stable stinks like all stables do. The stench of urine, dung, and sheep reeks pungently in the air. The ground is hard, the hay is scarce. Cobwebs cling to the ceiling, and a mouse scurries across the floor. How'd you like to have your kid there, gals? A more lowly place of birth could not exist. Near the young mother sits the weary father. Wide awake is Mary. My, how young she looks. Her head rests on the soft leather of Joseph's saddle. The pain has been eclipsed by wonder. She looks into the face of her baby, her son, her Lord, His Majesty. At this point in history, the human being who best understands who God is and what He is doing is a teenage girl in a smelly stable. Here's my question. Why a smelly stable? Why a manger? Why not Rome General Hospital? If this is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, why not wait till there was CNN to broadcast it live? Why a manger? Why there? Why that way? Let me give you a few reasons. First reason, humility. Humility. The incarnation, the birth of Christ, God coming to this earth, speaks of humility. It's all about humility. Paul explains it this way. Jesus, who was God in human flesh, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made Himself nothing and took upon Himself the very nature of a servant. Hey, what could be more humble than a fragile baby in a cave with a stepfather named Joseph who was a carpenter? a day laborer. That is humility. A simple package. You know, Christmas is an interesting time because lots of times we spend as much energy on the wrapping as we do the gift. And sometimes the wrapping costs more than the gift. There's even stores that will specially and with uh, great expense wrap your packages. Now let me just give a hint to all the gals present here tonight. It is a waste of time and effort and money to spend much effort and energy on fancy wrappings for a guy. Okay? Ever watch a guy open a gift? You get the picture. They don't really check out, oh, what a pretty bow. And if they do, they might have other problems. They just rip into it. God's gift came in the Simplest and most humble of wrappings. Not in satin sheets, but peasant cloth called swaddling cloths. Not, not in Rome, but in a village in the backwaters of the Roman Empire 
in Israel in Nazareth, or in, in Bethlehem. He wasn't born in a gold setting, but in a, a setting of barnyard animals. No doctors, no obstetricians, no pediatricians, just sheep and cows, maybe a camel or two in that place. The scripture predicts that he will be despised and rejected among men. And I say that place of birth befits the one who would live his whole life that way and then be buried in a borrowed tomb after his death. Now, I just want to touch on something and not spend much time on it, but there seems to be a little bit of confusion. Whenever we speak of Christmas, the incarnation, um, the birth of Christ, God coming as a man, here's, here's the question people struggle with. Was there ever a moment, was there ever a time in in Jesus' life where he suddenly became God? Was there ever a point in this incarnation where Jesus um, uh, assumed deity? Did he lay it aside and then pick it up? And, and the answer is no. Now listen carefully. Jesus was God in heaven. He was God in the womb. He was God at his birth, God through his life, and God at his death on the cross. The incarnation of Jesus Christ is not the subtraction of deity, it's just the addition of humanity. So that you have this unique individual. Not a good man, as some say. Oh yes, Jesus was a good man. No, he wasn't. Jesus was the God-man. Fully God, fully man. Very unique in that. That's what the incarnation is all about. You see, his deity was not void. I'll admit it was veiled, but not void. We sing every year, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, incarnate deity are the words of that song. Isaiah put it all together in one package, didn't he? When he predicted 700 years before the birth of that unique one, for unto us, a child is born unto us. A son is given. The government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's the package deal. And so the manger, why the manger? Humility. Here's another reason. Incompatibility. They came to Bethlehem. It was a busy time. There was a census going on. Everybody had to be registered. Everybody had to pay tax. It was something Caesar Augustus decreed over in Rome. But it shows the incompatibility because it says there was no room for Jesus and that family, Mary and Joseph. There was no room in the end. The Bible says that Jesus came into his own and his own what? Received him not. There was no room in the political world. They had no room for him. Caesar didn't care. Herod cared, but only because it touched his own personal office. He heard from the Magi in Matthew's Gospel that the king of the Jews has been born. And it says he was troubled. He was troubled because it threatened his own political office. There was no room in politics at that time for Jesus. And I've discovered something. There's still no room for Jesus in politics. 
except every four years when the guy wants votes and he suddenly comes to church and talks about how he's a Christian and then the rest of the time doesn't live like it. I'm so glad that we have a president who is a Christian. But, by and large, by and large, in the political arena, there is no room for God. Also, religion had no room for him at that time. Yeah, I know the Magi came. They asked the question, where's the king of the Jews going to be born? Herod got all upset and asked his religious leaders, the scribes, what do the prophets say about this? They cited chapter and verse immediately. They said, it is written in the book of Micah. You, Bethlehem, though you are little among the clans of Judah, out of you shall come the one who will rule my people Israel. They could cite chapter and verse. They knew their Bibles inside and out. But they didn't care to get up and go see for themselves. They just had all of this religious head knowledge, but in their own personal lives, there was no room for this king. Is it really any different today? You know, Jesus is okay in our culture as long as you say He's one among many. As long as you say all roads lead to God and all religions are the same. And Oh, we love that little baby in the manger. But as soon as He grows up and says, I am the way, the truth, the life, no man comes to the Father but by Me. People have no room for that kind of exclusivity. But that's who Jesus was. Don't you find it a bit ironic that Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone will open the door, I'll come in and have fellowship with him and he with me. Don't you find that it's ironic that Jesus said that to the church of Ephesus? Not to the world. We often quote that to the world. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door. Jesus said that to the church. Because there has been no room for the real Jesus, by and large, in lots of religious and even church settings. So the manger shows humility. The manger shows incompatibility. No room in the inn. The manger shows something else. Accessibility. I love this. Shepherds heard it, and they came and they checked it out, the story tells us. Nothing is more accessible than a feeding trough in a cave. Well, anybody can get in there. You don't have to flash ID credentials to Secret Service. You don't have to go through security checks. You can go. Anybody can go. Accessibility. And that accessibility, where you couldn't go see the president without the Secret Service checking you out or if you didn't have the right credentials. That kind of accessibility to Jesus marked his whole life. He was always open to people. Groups. Individuals. Remember the story where these gals tried to bring their babies to see Jesus and the disciples said, no, that can't happen. And Jesus got angry. He said, let them come. Don't forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Or do you remember the time when the woman in the crowd, and there was a large crowd pressing around Jesus, she managed to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. She said, I've got to do it. Jesus stopped and noticed her because he perceived power had gone out of him and recognized that this woman had faith. Or do you remember that Roman centurion and none of the Jews wanted anything to do with the Romans? This Roman came with faith and he said, you know, if you just speak the word to my servant, he'll be healed. 
Jesus said, I haven't found this kind of faith among the Jews in all of Israel. Jesus had time and was accessible. And so just as the manger was open and accessible and free to all, the manger was a preview of coming attractions. For you see, that baby grew up and hung on a cross. And just as the manger was accessible and all could come to the manger, all could and still can come to the cross. You see, God is all about access today. If you were to go back a few thousand years, God was not about access. You had to be Jewish. You had to go through the rite of circumcision. You had to keep all the sacrifices and all the rituals or tough. You can't get through. That's over now, folks. There was only one religion God ever gave mankind. It's called Judaism. Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. Because when Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple that separated them was ripped in two by God, not by man. He's saying, come, have access. Which means anyone, anytime, if there is a relationship with this boy, this son, Jesus, can go into the presence of God and have access. Listen to what Hebrews tells us. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us. I'll read it to you. Not the whole chapter. Relax. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is His body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and have our bodies washed with pure water. That means you and I can come and be cleansed of our sins, cleansed of our guilt, cleansed of an uneasy conscience by the blood of Jesus. So, we Christians, you see, live on Christmas Island. And we live there all year long. We love Christmas Eve. We love Christmas Day. But the secret of the Christian is that it's a lifestyle. It's not a day. It's not an event. Oh, it's Christmas. Yeah, we celebrate the Incarnation. But we live on Christmas Island all year long because... From that manger, that place of humility, that place which shows incompatibility, that place which speaks of accessibility. From that manger came the Prince of Peace, the one who brings all year long peace every day. I'm going to give you a little bit of Christmas trivia as I close. There's a word in our English language, you've heard it, it's the word bedlam, B-E-D-L-A-M, bedlam. The word bedlam comes from the word Bethlehem. And here's the story. Back in the 1500s in London, England, was a hospital called St. Mary's of Bethlehem. It was a hospital, an asylum for the mentally insane. For a small admission price, you could go into this hospital. True story. And for a small 
sum of money, you could heckle the inmates. That's cruel, isn't it? It became one of the top tourist attractions in London as people would visit from all over, pay a little bit of money, go into St. Mary's at Bethlehem, and make fun of the inmates. Over time, the word Bethlehem, because of the Cockney accent, got corrupted instead of Bethlehem, Bedlam. I'm going over to Bedlam. And so the term Bedlam today speaks of chaos, loud, confusing, chaotic kind of a life or moment. From Bethlehem to Bedlam, man, what a journey for that word to take. Question. Does the word Bethlehem best describe your life tonight? Or Bedlam? Is it Bethlehem where the Prince of Peace was born, the one in the major who came to bring that sense of ah? Or does Bedlam best describe your life? If Christ is in your life, it's a Bethlehem. If He's not in your life, it's still Bedlam. You're still in confusion. Jesus came to this earth not just so we could put lights up, but so that He could light you up all year long. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank You for this wonderful evening. We've been together just just about an hour. We've heard some terrific music from worship team and from a choir and Terry and Nancy. And all of them play and all of them sing because you put a song in the heart. And it comes out so naturally because you've done something so supernaturally. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this evening. And tomorrow, it's going to be a very busy time. And it could be that it's nothing more than bedlam. Or it could be that tonight and tomorrow and the rest of the year would be marked by Bethlehem. The place where the Prince of Peace emerged and promised peace because He is alone the Prince of Peace. Lord, we need it because the world in which we live is full of remorse and confusion and hopelessness. And so some of us tonight stand on on Christmas Island or in a place singing songs of hope, love, peace. Lord, I know that you don't want anybody to step off that island. You want us to live there all year long. No matter where we find ourselves, no matter what the world is like around us, there's a settled sense of peace that marks us, that moves us, that follows us every day of our lives. Lord, you've given that to those who have made Jesus Christ that little baby who grew up For those of us who follow you, you've granted peace, hope, meaning, and eternal life. Lord, we're here tonight 
thinking not only about a baby in a manger, but about our lives in relationship to Him. Some of us here have made a definite point of decision to change the direction we were going and give our lives yielded supremely and totally to Jesus. Some haven't. Some haven't. We thank You for everyone who has come. But we pray, Father, that if some have come to church but haven't yet come to Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior, they'd come tonight. They'd yield tonight. They'd surrender tonight. Because the truth is, what you want as a gift for Christmas is us. A surrendered heart. A yielded life. As we continue to pray for the next few moments, before we go out and forget about this moment altogether, would you just, in the silence of your own heart, be honest before God? And ask yourself, do I know Him? Have I surrendered my life to Him? Is God to me just an event, a once a year celebration, or a sporadic event? Every now and then I think about Him. Or is He the love of your life? Is He the master of your life? Have you surrendered to Him? Remember, friend, the Bible says, as many as received Him, God gave to them the power, the right, to become children of God, to those that believe in, cling to, rely on His name. If you're not sure that you've done that, if you're not sure, if you're not positive that you've done that, or, or if you did that some time back, maybe as a child, but you're not living for God, for the Lord Jesus tonight, there's no better time than Christmas Eve of 2004 to say yes to the one who made you, the one who loves you, and the one who came into this world to buy you back to his Father with his own blood. The baby in the manger is calling your name tonight. Would you respond and say yes to him? As we pray with our heads bowed, if you're willing, if you're wanting to do that, if God is speaking to your heart to do that, to be obedient to Him in that, I want you to raise your hand up high in the air so that I can see your hand. And I'm going to pray for you as we close off this Christmas Eve service. By raising your hand, you're saying, I need Him. I want Him. I'm going to receive Him tonight as my Savior and Lord. Raise your hand up in the air on this Christmas Eve. And you're saying yes to Jesus. God bless you. Anybody else? Raise it up high so I can see it. God bless you, sir. And you, sir. And you, ma'am, toward the back. And right over here. Young and old alike. Yes, a couple more of you right over here. And in the back. God bless you guys. Anyone else? Just slip the hand up. You're yielding to God. It's not about joining a church or being religious as much as saying yes to your Creator and the Savior of your soul. Raise those hands up. Lord, we, we close off praying for each of these individuals. They're individuals to you. You know their names. 
You know where they live. You know where they have lived. You know where they're going. You know the inmost thoughts of each heart, the hopes, the dreams, the failures, and the sin. You're willing to wash it away and make these brand new creations in Christ. What a great Christmas season this is to see so many saying yes to you. Lord, fill each of these with hope and peace and love, direction, confidence as they face the rest of their lives now with you as they come and make this decision to make you Lord. I pray for them. Give them the courage to live for you every day, the strength to say yes every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.